Well, good morning, church. Would you take your Bibles with me? Turn to Ezra chapter 7. This morning's text will be the first 10 verses of Ezra chapter 7. We'll read the text. Then you may be seated as I pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sareah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitu, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mareoth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord the God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. And thus far is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Father, we come before you this morning asking again for your help. Outside of the power of your Holy Spirit, who alone was charged with the ministry of guiding the people of Jesus into all truth, Outside of his help, this word is unintelligible. We will not be able to understand it. I will not be able to rightly handle it. So we trust you now for your aid through the ministry of the Spirit that we would be able to hear and obey. In the name of Jesus, would you please prevent Satan from snatching any of the good news from those who need to hear it today. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, beloved. Last Monday, you know, was the 505th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was at this time said to have nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. There is some debate as to whether or not the theses were nailed or actually mailed, but that's a story for another time. This is without a doubt the most well-known event in the Reformer's life. But I have a different question for you this morning. What was the most impactful event of the Augustan friar named Brother Martin? What were the most important things that he did? What was the culminating moment? What was the the conclusion of the the telos of what God wanted to do through 
Martin Luther. You might think that it was his debates with the indulgence-peddling Johann Tetzel. Or surely it was the confrontation with Johann Eck at the Diet of Worms, or Worms as we in English say it. doesn't sound very good. That's actually a deliberative body in the Roman Catholic Church. I know it sounds a lot like a food plan from the environmentalists and liberals. It was there that Luther delivered his famous Here I Stand speech. You might also think of lesser known moments in Luther's life. What about Katie Luther and their many children? Or what about Luther's friendly table talks with Ulrich Zwingli? Talks that ended about as friendly as a peaceful protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin. There were some pretty severe arguments they had. You should look it up sometime. It's pretty wild. I believe that the most impactful event in Luther's life is one that most people have never heard of. Probably no one in this room has heard of this event in the life of Martin Luther. The Frankfurt Book Fair of 1522. The Frankfurt Book Fair of 1522. You might say they had book fairs back then? Yes, they had book fairs actually all the way back to 1478, thanks to the invention of the Gutenberg printing press. This book fair, in particular, would change Germany and the rest of Europe forever. All because of one new book. The German New Testament, translated by Martin Luther during his two-year stay in the Wartburg Castle. He completed the translation in just under a hundred days. And he had to rush it to the printer to get it to the fair. For the first time, a common civilian could in public buy a partial copy of the Word of God in their own language. The impact is impossible to fully measure. The Luther Bible modernized the German language. It led to all kinds of educational reforms. We posted a couple of Martin Luther's quips in Slack recently about how dicey he was about public education, Christian education, and those being one and the same, all education should be Christian education. It also led to a massive increase in literacy, and there are groups online who have measured the distance from Wittenberg as this, at around that century and the expansion of literacy rates throughout Germany. It went from Wittenberg outwards all that hundred years. Most important of all, the Luther Bible made the reformational maxim of sola scriptura a reality for everyday people. They could finally have their own copy of God's word and know what it means to follow the Bible alone. Every generation of Christians is looking, not for the Frankfurt Book Fair, but for the next great reformer. We want to know when God will send the next Luther or Knox, or Spurgeon, or Edwards. But in our Marvel generation, Christians have been trained to look for heroes rather than those moments that God comes in and saves the day. These are the moments when God stirs up His people's hearts 
through a rigorous and radical commitment to the study of and obedience to the Word of God. Ezra was God's reformer for the Jews returning from exile. He was, in a sense, the new Moses for the new Exodus. Some Jewish historians actually see him as more significant than Moses because of how his Torah teachings changed and shaped Orthodox Judaism for the rest of history up to today. Ezra, along with Nehemiah, were the heroes. They were the dynamic duos, the OGs of their day. This morning, we're going to spend some time with the Bible's introduction to Ezra. He comes on the scene finally. He's written up into this point, but now he shows up as a character in the story. I don't want you to miss, however, what's actually happening. We'll spend some time examining who Ezra is. The Bible goes into some detail about his history, his past, where he comes from. God is bringing a reformer, but he's bringing a reformer to call his people back to obedience to his word, to his lordship. The temple has been built. The celebrations have happened. And now it's time for the Hebrews' own Frankfurt Book Fair. Now, if you'll look at with me at verses 1 through 6, since the completion of last week's text, about 57 years have gone by, about B.C. 516 to about 458. That's the time lapse between the two chapters, 6 and 7. We don't know anything about what happened to the Jews in Palestine during this time. We do know that during this period, Xerxes I made an expedition into Greece He initiated the battles of Marathon, Thermopylae, and Salamis, in which the deeds of Miltiades, Leonidas, and Simon led to two humiliating defeats for the Persian Empire. By the way, if you have a chronological Bible, the book of Esther should appear somewhere in the gap between chapters 6 and 7. The only other piece of inspired text we have about this period is that exchange of letters we read back in chapter 4 where Ezra kind of fast-forwarded in time, shared a letter that he had from the king. That's the evidence that we have of what went on during this about 50, 60-year period. With the growing pressure of hostility from their neighbors, the now second generation of the first wave of exiles is again questioning whether or not this whole idea of holiness is really necessary. It was after this, verse 1, that God chose to send a man that he had for years been preparing for, in the words of Mordecai, such a time as this. Ezra, the son of Sariah, is sent out by King Artaxerxes on a mission to Jerusalem, the details of which we will examine In about three weeks. He gives an abbreviated history of his connection to the house of Aaron. This is not uncommon for writers of antiquity. And you see it frequently in the scriptures. This is for the the purpose of showing Ezra's direct connection to the high priesthood. Handed down by God through the lineage of Moses' brother Aaron. And this is important, beloved. Remember, Ezra has one job. To rightly teach the word of God to the people of God. For the purpose of strengthening their resolve and commitment to Yahweh. Now I mentioned earlier that he's going to make some significant reforms. That will affect the entire Jewish nation. And we'll get to those in the coming chapters. 
But in other words, Ezra's credentials mattered. They mattered a lot. I'll tell you a story. Why do credentials matter? Back in December of 2013, a memorial service was held in South Africa for the passing of political revolutionary Nelson Mandela. The whole production was broadcasted on international TV, and then President Obama was one of the keynote speakers. The whole production was rather self-aggrandizing for those that spoke, but nobody was more disrespected than the deaf community. While putting together the logistics for this event, HR must have forgotten to check and see if the man that they had hired to sign for the deaf actually knew sign language. And it turns out, as a matter of fact, he did not. This is a true story. The guy just got up there and started making up signs in the middle of speeches. Now, if you can imagine for just a minute what this would be like, you're sitting in some sort of HR meeting, and does anybody know anybody who speaks sign language? And the guy in the back's thinking, well, I'll give it a try. <laughs> I'm not sure he knew what hearing impaired even meant, except for his own. Of course, the deaf community was outraged, but once he was on stage... At that point, what can you do? Well, God's selections for the mighty men of every age are not so frivolous. They are not so careless. The man whom God chose to show up on the scene was going to have to be a crisis man. He had to be of the high priestly line so that he could step into a messy situation, make sacrifices for the people, sympathize with and strengthen the Jews in their hour of increasing trials. He needed to have a firm grasp on the Torah and be able to rightly interpret it and live it out as an example to God's flock. He would ultimately have to foster a commitment among the people of diligent study of God's word in order to prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. This is the Ezra who went up from Babylonia. The ESV says in verse 6, that Ezra was a scribe in the law of Moses. The meaning of the word scribe here is probably twofold. It means first that he was a student of the Mosaic law, but it's got some connotations for the Persians as well. It's likely that Ezra was a royal secretary appointed by Artaxerxes for official imperial record keeping. That's probably why he had that document in hand from the previous chapters, because he was a royal secretary and had access to those things. The next word, the word skilled, translated by the ESV, literally means rapid or quick. I don't have time to go into it, but Ezra was no slouch when it came to Torah knowledge. He is believed to be the founder of the Jewish, Jewish exegesis method called the Midrash Halakha. That may not mean much to us, but it became massively important in the years following his life. Now, a brief pause as we're studying through these verses. Here's our protagonist, Ezra, descended from the line of Aaron. And to borrow a line from King Peter from the Narnia star stories, he's a real brick, which simply means he's super cool. 
But it's in moments like these that it's tempting to start to run a comparison game. We talk about our heroes and we begin to think, I wish I could, you fill in the blank. Except, I don't know that much about the Bible. No one has ever used the adjective rapid to describe anything about my intellect, though I really do have a lot going on up here. I've never had an important job. I've never worked for anyone of influence. I don't feel the favor of God on my life, and I can't remember if I ever have. My family tree is a mess, nothing like Ezra's. It's the kind, you know, that when you shake it, nuts come out, right? Amen. Allow me to offer you some hope, brothers and sisters. All this really great stuff about Ezra, it's meant to help us establish who he is and what his purpose is. But if we pay close enough attention, it honestly tells us less about Ezra and much more about Ezra's God. I want you to think about this for a minute. Whose image and likeness is Ezra made in? He's made in God's. So everything that Ezra did right is just imaging forth, with excellence, the God who made him. And that same God promised to make you who are in Christ after his likeness as well. And God keeps his promises. Who were Ezra's forefathers? They were a long line of high priests. And were any of those priests free from sin? They were not. Our family just read in Exodus in our family worship time about Aaron's accidental idol that just came out of the fire. It's a riddled past back there. Not to mention Ezra, in the story, what you don't hear, has to hike or travel about 500 miles from Babylon to Judea. That's about a four-month trip. And they went the long way because it was the summer and they weren't going to pass through the desert. They also wanted to avoid Egypt because there was a rebellion going on down in that area during this time. What does Ezra have going for himself that God did not give him? Be warned, brothers, about the sin of covetousness, the comparison game. Some of you here today are so concerned with how you measure up to others, especially others in this church. It's like when you read that description about Ezra. You say, I'll never measure up to that. You feel that way to other people that you were in covenant fellowship with. This leads to wishing that you had what you have what they have, being angry at them and God because you don't have it. I'll never be that good. I won't ever get the chance. Nobody will ever look up to me like that. I'm comfortable where I'm at because I know I probably won't ever get any better. The result in men is that they quit. They give up. They turn on soft mode. Paul taught us in 1 Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I would argue to you this morning that there's a pretty strong connection between covetousness in men and softness. Remember, brothers, softness is a sin too. Paul listed in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Literally, soft in the Greek 
translated effeminate in those translations that translate that individual word. Here's a quick definition. Softness in a man is any moment when he does not gladly fulfill a God-ordained responsibility. Softness in a man is any moment when he does not gladly fulfill a God-ordained responsibility. To neglect one's wife is softness. To physically or verbally abuse one's children using all of his strength is softness. Laziness is softness. Lack of bodily maintenance is softness. Porn addiction is so stinking soft. I can't get a girl, so I'll watch other men devour women. To complain about your past or be bitter about what others have and never pick up the word of God because I'm just not that smart is softness. And brothers, I would argue to you that the pit of softness is often excavated by the backhoe of covetousness. Beyond repentance, my brothers, the first aid needed for a, covenant, for a covetous heart is a 55-gallon drum dose of thanksgiving. Remember all that Ezra had going for himself tells you way more about what God did for him than what he was able to do. The fact that you are here today, brothers, breathing the air you're breathing with all the luxuries of American living, and the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ has taken root in your heart, what does that tell you about your God? Things that you ought to vocalize. That He is good. And He is still in the business of making beauty out of ashes. He is still in the business of getting reformers out of their dark ways. Out of exile in Babylon. Or from hunting Christians by order of the Pharisees. Or from a dark monastery somewhere in Germany. And right here in some middle class home in East Tennessee. I've said this over and over again the last few weeks. And we've been thinking about contentment for a while now. But what do you have that you did not receive? Look at the last part of verse 6 from this morning's text. It says, Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Pay attention now. That the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. What did Ezra have that he didn't receive? And the king granted him all that he asked. Well, that's nice. Makes things easy. For the hand of the Lord was on him. The only reason he was getting any of these blessings is because God was doing things. God was around him with favor. The word was given by God. The blessings of the king were given by God. What does Ezra have to boast about except that he didn't take God's talent and bury it in the ground? For every man in this church who has ever felt or is currently feeling what I just described, do this. Go home and throw a party. Tell your wife and every one of your children what God has done for you. Verbalize it in front of them. Don't just get some food and plan to sit and watch a movie. Verbalize to your family everything that you can think of that God has done to bring you to this point. Take some time. 
sit there. I want to think back through the blessings that led me to this point. And I will vocalize every one of them to my children. And then have everybody raise a glass of whatever drink to Jesus and sing together. And sing together. Praise God. Worship Him in song. Stop telling yourself stupid lies about who you were and what they are and get to work. God didn't make Ezra all that he was overnight. It was through years of captivity in a foreign land where Ezra gladly took responsibility to study the word of God. That's how God builds reformers. And before we deal with the remainder of the passage, I want to press home something even more significant here. We're talking about a man who was of the priestly line, the high priestly line, to serve Israel in a powerful way. But no matter how qualified Ezra was, he was woefully inadequate. Some clever person might respond by saying, what do you mean? He was, in fact, biblically qualified. And that is true. The writer of Hebrews agrees. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, that is the priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, which Ezra does, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice, which Ezra will do, for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Descended from the line of Aaron, fits all of the qualifications. He was appointed by God for this task. However, with all that this man brought to the table, his knowledge of the word, his unique exegesis, his drive to commit the people to obedience to God, Could Ezra's priesthood, which would establish change in the Jewish religion for years to come, could that priesthood bring atonement for anyone's sins? Hebrews says, no, it couldn't. For it is impossible, chapter 10, verse 4 of Hebrews, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Could Ezra make the people love the law of God and not just obey it? Because those are two different things. Could he do more than read the law to them? Could he perform surgery, opening up their chest cavity and writing the law of God on their hearts? But Jeremiah 31 says that I, the Lord, will write my law upon their hearts. Ezra's teachings and interpretations were invaluable in his generation. Yet because of the stony hearts of his hearers, a seed was planted which eventually made men hope that they could attain salvation by keeping the law. And our Lord Jesus spoke to the tenth generation of men after Ezra. Ten generations later. He says these words. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John chapter 5, verse 39. Aaron didn't cut it. Neither did Jeshua from a few chapters prior. Ezra is pretty legit, but he's still not good enough. God's people needed a perfect high priest. And beloved, you know that that high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the great teachings of the reformers, and which was reflected in our catechism and confession, which is reflected in our church catechism and confession, is that Christ, in order to fulfill all the scriptures, prophesied of him. And in order to serve us perfectly in this life, and for all eternity, must both fulfill and hold the offices of prophet, priest, and king. By the providence of God, we landed on this question last week in our catechism readings. Question, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? The answer, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. That's what little Caleb said he's not worried about anymore this morning. And to reconcile us to God, Hebrews 2.17, and in making continual intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25. Consider, beloved, how Jesus is the better Ezra. He became the singular sufficient sacrifice which fully appeased God's wrath against sin. For Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You remember that parable that Jesus told about the man who owed his master a great debt? He owed him 10,000 talents of gold, approximated to about $16.5 million today. And then he was ultimately put in prison until he could pay his debt. Imagine for a minute having that kind of debt to pay and being put into a prison where you can't earn the money to pay back the debt. That's the reality of everyone who's born in Adam. The sin debt that we owe God is unpayable by us and there is, hear this now, no way to earn it. It cannot be earned. But, glory to God, Jesus Christ put away sin one time for all his people, by the sacrifice of himself. So if you are set free from your sin through repentance and faith, as these testified this morning before their baptism, and then you go on to commit another sin, it doesn't create new debt. Jesus paid it all. This sacrifice not only freed you from your sin but led to your adoption into God's family. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So you're a free man, are you? Christ paid the great debt of sin for you, both past and future, and you are 
on your own now? Is that what you really want? Anyone born of the Spirit would say, no, no, I can't. Having been forgiven much, how could I love so little? I can't walk away from that kind of grace because God's grace is truly irresistible. The world's most powerful magnet to the family of God is the grace of God. And because of that torn curtain of Christ's body, which we sang of this morning, you are now welcome into the house of God as one of his children. Actually, it might be more accurate to say that God has welcomed himself into his new temple, that is, ourselves. And that he's become our father. Glory to God. In addition to the abating wrath of God, to abating the wrath of God, and making us members of his family, Jesus is constantly praying to the Father on our behalf. As I mentioned earlier from Hebrews chapter 7, consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now that you're in the house and a member of the family, you have to learn the house rules. Which God ordained would come usually through the school of hard knocks. But Jesus, your great high priest, is constantly praying for you. He is praying that you may not fail. That you will triumph in him over the devil and your sin. That you will be saved not just in a moment of failure... But to the uttermost, the ESV translates, or forever from the legacy standard, or completely from the Christian standard, or to the very end, Young's literal translation. A sufficient sacrifice, an irrevocable adoption, unending intercession. Brothers and sisters, what does a great high priest, and he was a great one, like Ezra, have on Jesus Christ. What could Ezra do about the sin of your softness, men? Not one thing. But Jesus became the propitiation for your softness. As the great high priest of your soul, he went to the altar in Jerusalem and stepped into your place as your substitute, becoming the sacrifice that appeases God. That's what propitiation means. He became that sacrifice for your abdicating heart. You and the Apostle Peter can now link arms and stand side by side upright in front of God the Father. For though you both denied your responsibility to Christ, he in substitution paid both your debts. How does Ezra get you past the curtain into the Holy of Holies? He can't. He's not allowed. He would be kicked out of the priesthood if he let somebody into the Holy of Holies other than himself on the Day of Atonement once a year. But through Christ's death, you have now been irrevocably adopted into God's family, no longer needing to wait in a line outside a mountaintop temple in Jerusalem for a priest to make another sacrifice for your sins. Because God moved the Holy of Holies in here now. 
into our very hearts, the Father forever to dwell with his child. What can any high priest do for you when you again choose to sin and fall back into bitterness or covetousness or anger leading to shouts at your wife or children or a gossipy spirit with your sisters here? Ezra can only pray for one person at a time. And he's not doing a lot of praying right now. A lot more praising. But Jesus, being now in his exalted state, resurrected as the fulfillment and telos of every great high priest, and who being himself both transcendent and eminent, which means God beyond our comprehension, while at the same time being identified with us in every respect as the scriptures teach, can send to the throne of his Father an unending stream of prayers for you and every one of his people at the same time, and prayers that will be effectual in turning you back to the narrow way every time. J.C. Ryle said, If you know what it is to go to the throne of grace for mercy and pardon, do not forget the mediator by whom you draw near to God, and that the man Christ Jesus. Your soul's business is in the hand of a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of your own infirmities? Think about that. Do you begin to see why the most important thing about Martin Luther's ministry was not his great moments, but the Frankfurt Book Fair? The most important thing about Ezra's ministry was not his great moments, but his recommitting the people to the study of God's word. Jesus never promised that his sheep would follow Luther's voice or Ezra the high priest's voice, or Calvin's, or Augustine's, or Tozer's, or Lewis's, or Donald Trump's. He promised that his sheep would hear and follow him. They would hear his voice and walk after him. And that he would lead them to green pastures. If you are here today walking in unbelief, let me tell you something. None of what I just said is true of you. None. Your unrepentant heart is storing up wrath for you on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The Bible promises that he will render to each one according to his works. You saw from little Caleb Haas this morning. There was a moment when he sits at a table wondering about the wrath of God because the wrath of God abides on everyone who does not believe. But by faith in Christ, there's no more wrath. Unbeliever, why stand there in your unbelief with an uncircumcised heart? Moses promised a day when the people of God would not be merely circumcised in their flesh, but have circumcised hearts. And the Bible teaches that circumcision he was referring to is faith in Jesus Christ. Stop living in unbelief and put your trust in Christ alone now. He is already the great high priest of the universe. So confess to him your sin and your need for him to intercede on your behalf. Turn from your wicked ways while there is still time. Now with the time that remains, we'll look at the last four verses, 7 through 10. A heavy dose of applied Christology is a great remedy for the dragon of a covetous heart. 
It also makes it easier to look at the characters that God uses in his story to see how we can, as Hebrews teaches at its conclusion, consider their outcome and their way of life and then imitate their faith. You notice the writer of Hebrews spends about 11 and a half chapters talking about Christ and his supremacy and then gives the work of, oh, and look back to those folks from the past and imitate them. You need all that Christology to get to the point where you understand his characters rightly. The last four verses of today's text reveal who went with Ezra and, no matter what Artaxerxes commanded, what he himself was intending to go to Jerusalem for. Verse 7 states that some people, some priests, some Levites, some singers, some gatekeepers, and some temple slaves went up to Jerusalem with Ezra. Now that list should sound familiar. The traveling companions for this second wave of exiles were identical groupings to those that we saw back in chapter 2 during the first wave. Verses 8 and 9 of today's text reveal the length of time the journey took. It was the first of the first month to the first of the fifth month, so about four to five months, give or take how they read that. And that this was achieved because the good hand of Ezra's God was on him. Now you might get used to hearing that phrase, because we're going to hear it quite a bit in the coming chapters. It's mentioned twice in this morning's text, in verse 6 and verse 9. It'll be said of Ezra again in chapter 7, verse 28, 8, verse 18, and in Nehemiah 2, verse 8, and verse 18, all said of Ezra. What reason could there possibly be for this kind of favor from God? In verse 10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. Beloved, that is not my opinion, and I left out a word on purpose. The very first word of verse 10, for the biblically inspired, Holy Spirit inspired reason why Ezra was favored by God was because he had set his heart to study God's word, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Simply put, Ezra was committed to know, live, and teach. He was going to know the Bible, he was going to live the Bible, and he was going to teach the Bible. And I want to go back again to what I believe needs to be your main takeaway from a passage like this. The mission of God, that the knowledge of Him cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah eleven nine. Let me ask this. Is Ezra coming in with another wave of exiles? He is. He is leaving the darkest of places in the entire biblical narrative, Babylon, and headed back to what is probably throughout history the most contested piece of real estate in the history of the world. If you had one wish, what would you ask God that you could bring back to help your people in a moment like this? Perhaps an army? Some momentum? Next week's Powerball numbers? Pastor Jim Hamilton describes this quandary in his own words. What do the people of God need? The people of God need to be liberated from bondage. They need to be gathered for a march on the land. 
They need to be led through the wilderness to the land of promise, and that reestablished. They need an army, walls, a military, and a great leader. They need a king from the line of David. And they need to subject the nations to the reign of Yahweh. And the ox cart pulling the next wave of exiles across the desert tracks of the Middle East to Judea is loaded with the nuclear warhead of the Word of God. The missile carrier is the man of God who has set his heart to diligently study it. Brothers, the Word of God was the weapon Israel needed to resist their enemies. The Word of God was the tool that they would use to finally conquer the land. The Word of God was the means of preparing the way for that king, Dr. Hamilton wrote that specifically for that purpose, from the line of David to once again take the throne. That's why the favor of God was on Ezra, because he was reading God's story right and had set his heart to see the kingdom of God increasing through knowing, living, and teaching the word of God. And God's favor to him is an exact fulfillment of Isaiah 66 verse 2 that I referenced from last week. These are the ones I, that is the Lord, look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Let me tell you something, church. We don't need a Christian army, per se, to roll into Clinton and force the library into submission to King Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the triumphal moment in history when the Son of God was declared by His Father to be ruler of all of that creation. The war for the ownership of the library and the county commission building and every other square inch of this county and world has been won. The world already belongs to King Jesus. And the sword that we have been called to wield, which has divine power to deliver weapons-grade damage to the strongholds that are left here, is the words of God. Don't miss this. If you will devote yourself to know, live, and teach the word of God. Can you look at Isaiah 11, verse 9, and say... That doesn't apply to me. Can you look at Isaiah 66 too and say, mm, that doesn't apply to me. There's no promise of God for me. No, that promise still applies today. And all of God's promises are yes and amen to us in Christ Jesus. Men of Christ the King, are you confident in the power of God through your devotion to and your teaching of His Word to your wife and children that change can and actually will come into your home? Do you believe that God could grant such favor to you that the application of the Word of God would finally reveal to your wife that besetting sin that she just doesn't see? That your children will begin to deeply be convicted of their sin and even this week start to sense their need for a Savior? I tell you today, God's Word is powerful enough even for this. Sisters at Christ the King, you have not been given a charge to teach and preach as the men have. But can and will the God of the universe respond 
to your faithful pursuit of Him in His Word. Your hope in its help to order your prayers rightly. Your confidence in its power to make you content in your anxiousness about your lazy husband, your noisy children, or your own covetous heart. Can the Word of God, through the faithful study of a wife or mother, create chain-breaking and legacy-beginning change to the generations? I stand before you all today and tell you that promise is absolutely true. My mom, with her full-time nursing job and two rambunctious twin boys in public school and an unbelieving and constantly inebriated husband, got up every single day to pursue Christ in her Bible and to pray for me. God can bring massive change. Young people, even small children here learning to read, could you this very day stand in front of this church and declare that you truly love the Word of God? Is studying the Bible a chore for you? If so, can God change that? If you repent of your apathy towards diligent attention to the Scriptures, could God give you such a love for His Word that it impacts not only your family and church, but even our community? Don't we serve a God who uses what is weak in the world to shame the strong? Wouldn't it be like our God to put his favor on some 11-year-old boy standing in front of the library board and shaming them into repentance, quoting God's word? Listen, beloved, not everyone is going to get a doctoral-level grasp of the Bible. We each have different callings and time constraints, and those change from season to season. But what I'm asking you is this question. Are you devoted with what God has given you to the Word of God? Let me tell you something. God can accomplish anything in this world through the power of His Word. And He will use those who have devoted themselves to the diligent study of it through the favor promised in Isaiah 66 verse 2. I mentioned earlier Ezra's credentials. And in American Christianity today, we have a problem with credentials. We have a problem with credentials. Have you been to seminary? How many years were you there? Can I see your degree? Oh, great. Why don't you come and shepherd all these people you don't know anything about? The important thing for us to think about is not credentials, because for us, those come from Christ, but competency. It's not credentials, but competency. Just because you have the credentials doesn't mean you have the competency. Ezra clearly had both. We want people who are professionals, who've climbed the ladder. They got the name tag. Whether or not that person is competent today is really irrelevant. This ends up making us look as ridiculous as Barney Fife when he comes up to the bad guy and points at his badge. Look at the badge. Look at the badge. I'm a police officer. Well, why don't you act like one? This is essentially the same problem that Samuel had when he was looking for the next king of Israel. He looked at a man to see if he had the credentials to be the king. God was concerned with the man who was competent to be king. Hear this, beloved. God cares more about your competency than he does about your credentials. And this is the good news. Here's where the word of God comes in. 
This is why the mission of God to spread his word across the earth matters. Because all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, synonym, competent, fully equipped for every good work. Devote yourself to know, live, and teach God's word. Because Christ is your high priest and king. I hope it's clear now that the greatest moment in Martin Luther's life, the moment that God had raised him up for, was not his 95 theses or his here I stand speech, but it was the radical commitment to the word of God that produced the New Testament and eventually the whole Bible, he translated the whole Bible, into the common language of the German people. The Frankfurt Book Fair was Luther's defining moment and has changed so much of world history today. But he had to be convicted first of his sin. And if you've read any stories of Luther, boy was he convicted of his sin. And he then had to rest in the priesthood of Christ on his behalf. And then he had to choose what would help his community the most. And he chose to study God's word. This is what Ezra did, and God blessed his ministry profoundly. Beloved, commit anew to the study of the word of God. If we're to take Anderson County for Jesus, one thing remains to be done that reigns supreme above all others, to bring the word of God to bear in every area of this county. Our enemies cannot and will not stand against it. We are promised that. It may take generations, but the word of God will prevail. I leave you with a well-worded agreement from Martin Luther himself. He said, life is bad among us, but I don't scold myself into becoming good. Instead, I wrestle over the word. When the word remains pure, then life even if there's something lacking in it, can be molded properly. He goes on to say that everything depends on the word, which is why the Pope has abolished the word and in its place put another. With this, I, Luther, with this, I have victory. And I have victory in nothing else than that I teach the word aright. Although we could say we're better morally, this isn't anything to fight about. Listen to this. It's the teaching that breaks the Pope's neck. May it be so with all those who have put their faith in our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to come and sing and celebrate Christian baptism and again pray to you and seek your face in your word and through prayer and now to come to the table in anticipation of that great day when we will celebrate Jesus Christ in his kingdom in all its fullness. We so long for this day. So prepare our hearts through what time you have given to each of us, some much and some little, to the diligent study of your word. 
as you promised, bring favor to us so that we might extend the kingdom of Jesus to where the word of God will one day fill the earth like the waters cover the seas. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.